Yo, yo. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Let's see. Today is the 30th, the last day of November, I believe, right? Tomorrow's the first? Yes, that's right. So today is November 30th, 2023. My name is Luke Thomas. Welcome to episode 181 of my live chat. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. We, of course, were off last week because it was Thanksgiving. I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I did. Uh, and now we're back this week. And there is a lot. Dude, there was news today that was, I thought, pr- people were sleeping on how big this news was. I actually thought it was pretty big, even though it seemed very ordinary. Um, the PFL and ESPN are, announced a renewed broadcast deal, which to me is kind of interesting. There's a lot of different factors about that. By the way, in the release, nothing about PFL Europe, which is probably going to air on zone. Nothing about Bellator. Let's see. Let's buy a roster because there's no value to the IP, but let's buy the roster and then just shelve it someplace. <laughs> okay. I don't know how that's going to go for you guys. Um, don't think that's a great idea, but okay. So we can talk about that. We can talk about uh, there's fights this weekend. Whatever you want to get to. It's uh, your chat as much as it is mine. So thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Subscribe. Hey, it's free. Really appreciate that. couple of options. You can join right here. YouTube.com slash Luke Thomas slash join. I wish there was an easier way, but that is the URL. Uh, you can join to support the channel. And... Um, Let's see. If you do that, you can, of course, ask questions for free for the live chat, or you can just put in a donation at the end of about an hour of free questions. We'll get to any of the paid ones that you have. But if you just want to hang out and take it all in for free, that's cool, too. I'm just glad you're here. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, we've been off for a while. So, without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? And we're back. Um, I have an incredibly sore throat, so I'm going to try and muscle through this. There may be a time or two where I have to like put a hold up or a, you know, a, a layover or whatever, uh, uh, overlay, excuse me, on the screen to uh, give myself some cough medicine. Not cough medicine, but uh, sore throat medicine or whatever. But I'll try to do that as minimally as possible. right? And I realize that you don't really care about this. I'm just telling you. Um, yeah. So that's it. All right, let's take off the ticker again. YouTube.com slash Luke Thomas slash join. But with that out of the way, let's get that ticker off. There we are. All right. Very good. Let's get the questions going without further ado. All right, let's refresh this. Very good. All right, let's put it up. And we'll do it like this, which is the one I kind of prefer to do it. Uh, Let's see here. Ooh, we're a little bit down on that one. Let's go back up to the top. There we are. Uh, Luke, you've often highlighted... Here we go. Luke, you've often highlighted just how special a prime BJ Penn really was. For those who didn't experience him during his best years, can you explain what made him so great? What separated him from the other top fighters from his era? And if that version of him was in the modern UFC, how would he fare? Um, Of anyone who had a skill set that I think could do well even in the modern era it would be him so let's go back up a step how do you get the nickname the prodigy came from jiu-jitsu he's the first american to ever win the brazilian jiu-jitsu world championships uh, at the black belt level right he's the first one to ever do it and he did it i think i don't know how many years he'd been training jiu-jitsu i think it was something like between four and six before he won the world championships which is like this you know insane thing that he was able to do that and his jiu-jitsu was far ahead of its time Far ahead of its time. 
It's so far ahead of its time that even now today you're seeing people who can't play catch up with it. Like you're seeing some things, like for example, um, if you look in the rematch, now he popped a rib doing it, but if you look at the BJ Penn rematch with Matt Hughes, he swims behind and tries to use octopus guard to take the back. And I believe he either got it briefly or nearly got it, but he ended up injuring himself and then got pounded out thereafter. But Craig Jones is bringing back sweeping behind the the near side arm from octopus guard to take the back as like a really uh, now he, there, there's a little bit more of a system behind it now and i think you're gonna see um nuances added to it that even what Penn was doing it might not necessarily have but that was in the rematch with matt hughes what year what was this like i mean i think this was before 2010 or certainly around that time and you know he's so he, like, a guy doing octopus guard Again, here we are. Let me just double check. When was BJ Penn versus Matt Hughes too? Let's see that real quick. I just want to check for my own, uh, in terms of the point I'm trying to make here. So if we look at his record, he did lose that fight. Yeah, UFC 63. Excuse me. That was you. That was 2006. <laughs> that was 2006. 17 years ago, and that dude is hitting octopus guard on people. I mean, it's just the most insane shit you've ever seen in your life, right? That's the kind of stuff he was doing. He weaponized jiu-jitsu in ways that even guys today aren't really as caught up as he was in terms of like the, the level of detail and the kinds of things, back attacks while trapping the arm, right? Now you're seeing a lot of guys. There's a whole Danaher system about trapping from the back, using one leg to trap the arm, right? BJ Penn was doing this 20 years ago. I mean, it's just absurd how far ahead he was. So that's one thing. Then here's the other parts of the game. His takedown defense, back when this really, really mattered, because you didn't necessarily need to have positive wrestling if you were going to do his kind of game. His takedown defense was extraordinary. His balance was extraordinary. I mean, the Sean Shirk fight's a pretty good example, but there's a lot of them. St. Pierre was able to overcome it, but that was up a weight class. You know, St. Pierre is very special. So he had, like, lights out takedown defense. <coughs> Excuse me, we're talking, like, the peak version of him. And then the other part was he had extremely good boxing and a rock chin. Again, we're talking the prime version of him. The prime version of him, he oh, and he was heavy-handed. Like, he had big knockout. He had natural knockout power. He had a phenomenal jab. I remember one time, uh, you, there's another interview where he does this, but even I personally spoke to Freddie Roach about this, about who had good jabs in MMA. Because Freddie Roach had trained GSP. He trained for a very brief time, Arlovsky, and I think he either trained or... I had worked with Penn or something, or I had remarked about seeing him. Um, he, had a, he had a phenomenal jab. It pumped hard. It was accurate. It was fast. Um, you know, and the guy was, you know, remember his his attitude just scrapped. Like, he was like a natural-born fighter from the streets of Hawaii, even if he had a privileged background from which he came. But, like, the guy who he ended up being, um, he was, I mean, you know, I'm not one of these guys who's like, oh, he was destined to fight. I don't know that. But if I had to pick a human being out of a lineup, to have certain characteristics, like insane flexibility, this obsession with skill development, and this ability to do it, phenomenal athleticism, believe it or not, all these things that you see through his jiu-jitsu, through his takedown defense, through his rock chin, through his good boxing, through his natural power, hard to hurt, hard to cut. I remember the first time I actually got worried for Penn was actually in the Nick Diaz fight, which did not go well for him, but it was the first time I'd ever seen him lumped up and then like physically bruised. I'd seen him lose fights. I'd never seen him bruised in that way. That was the first time, and I was like, wow, somebody actually can do it. I wasn't even sure anybody could do it for a time. You know, that's who BJ Penn was. Who was going to beat that guy 
in you know when he was fighting Joe Stevenson in 2008 and Sean Shirk in 2008. I realize he lost to Frankie Edgar in, in, in 2010, so it kind of came off the rails there. But in the time in which he was dominating, or at least had his best run, who was going to beat that guy? Nobody. There was nobody at 155 that was going to beat that guy at that particular moment. He was built for this. The thing that always kind of got Penn was he was, um, even during that time, a little bit on the lazy side, right? I'm just going to surf and just show up. He, so he had this kind of attitude that like either you can fight or you can't. Either you're built for it internally or you're not. And he would show up, I think, a lot of times. Like into the second Hughes fight, he was physically unprepared for the second Hughes fight. He was very unprepared for it. He should have won that. He was, I think he was winning up until he had popped his rib on the octopus guard back take. Um so he had, you know, he, I remember like someone asked him. This was a, I can I can even see it in my head. There was a, there was a, they may still be around. It was inside fighting at the time, and they had asked him like, "What are you going to do to train for the the Hughes rematch?" Because remember the first time he fought Hughes up a weight class, he went in there and just bulldozed him, took his back, choked him out, and rocked him with a punch the whole nine, and became the champion. He, he's like, "This is nothing to me. This is easy," and so he was like, "Yeah, I'm just going to surf," and I was like. You're just going to surf to train for Matt Hughes? Like, I get that the first fight went well, but that doesn't seem wise. And sure enough, it didn't. So that kind of stuff always plagued him and held him back a little bit. Um, but make no mistake about it, man. When that dude was icing people like Diego Sanchez and Sean Shirk, you, you just looked at him and you thought, I've never seen a human put more naturally advantageous um, physical characteristics, uh, physiological makeup, combined with elite technical skill, putting it all together. And then he was with the Marinovich brothers who brought the best out of him physically. There was this moment in time where everything came together. And it was a brief window, but when you got it, it was just magic. Like, there was just nobody like BJ Penn. And, you know, and again, up up and down, uh, for good or for bad. But at his best, you know, people are like, why did they call him the prodigy? Dude, they called him that for a very good reason. For a very good reason. He He was... He was the first fighter I ever truly, um, if I, I mean, I'm not really fans anymore in that way. You know, I mean, I, I like certain ones and I have good relationships with others or whatever, but he was the first one I was ever like in his skill set was so next level. I was just enamored by it. And I just want to point out he's doing, he was doing 20 years ago, jujitsu stuff that even now is just starting to become more widespread among the fighting fan base. I mean, that's how far ahead he was. Crazy far ahead. Um, he just didn't have the kind of discipline and work ethic to consistently bring the best out of himself. And he's also weight class jumping and shit like that, you know. So, dude, have you guys ever seen BJ Penn beat the fucking dog shit out of Takanori Gomi? Oh, <laughs> I believe that was Rumble on the Rock. Rumble on the Rock was a big promotion out of the time, um, I'm Carlos Condit fought on Rumble on the Rock. A bunch of guys fought on Rumble on the Rock. There was kind of like this question at the time about who was going to be the best in that weight class during that era, and Gomi had a lot of hype. Dude, Penn went in there and fucking snatched his soul, beat the living shit out of him. And you might say, oh, I saw Takanori Gomi compete in UFC years ago. Yeah, you saw a completely washed version of him. If you didn't see the Pride version or what came before the Pride version... It, shit, if you didn't even see it before the Marcus Aurelio fights, you didn't really see it, you know. It, 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 he, he had a window before that, too. Like, have you ever seen uh, Jens Pulver versus Takanori Gomi? Shit. Go watch that one. That one is sick. And Pulver tried to take it to him, but Takanori Gomi was, was in his zone. Dude, Penn demolished him. Demolished. 
Um, you know, and then he was going up weight classes and, and beating guys so much bigger than him. He he seemed, at his best, he seemed unstoppable. You know, he wasn't, obviously, but at his best, he seemed that way. Uh, all right, let's go back to this. Let's put that one in there. Oops, what, what are we doing here? There we are. All right. Very good. Um, okay, yes, here's this one. Luke, a lot has been made about new generation of lightweights not taking over the top of the division like what we thought would happen a few years ago, at least not yet. Out of Kutateladze, Ismogulov, Armin, Saryukian, Gamrot, Fiziev, Turner, and Dawson, what do you think their ceiling is and who will emerge as the next title challenger or holder? Yeah, you know, I've been one of these guys who was definitely big on the idea that there was a new crop of them coming and they were all just going to immediately take over. And that hasn't quite worked out that way. Certainly... There is a slow-moving changing of the guard, but it's much slower, and then it's much more uneven than I thought it would be. So that has been kind of interesting. Gamrot appears to be um, very far along, but I think there's a question about the overall development of his game that makes me wonder about how that's going to go. Um, Fazeev, let's see what happens with him after he lost and then had the injury. I don't know. Turner, man, have you guys seen Jalen Turner's comments this week? Concerning. Says he didn't want to take the fight and then felt like he kind of had to. And you could interpret that a couple of ways. But then he was saying how much it kind of bothered him seeing how much Dan Hooker was beat up after their fight. And his weight's a mess. Or at least, you know, it's a big struggle for him. Like, there's just a lot of things he said that have been really making me second guess exactly where he's at competitively. And I, these are not judgments about, like, him as a person. Like, I think all fighters probably go through some version of this at some point. But he's going through it. So there's that. Dawson, I think, needs to get right. We'll see. Kutateladze was one of these guys who has, on paper, man, he looks like the real deal Holyfield, but has somewhat underperformed. Ismogulov, I think, he retired and then came back, and then Saryukian beat him. So Armin, Gamrot, Fazeev, and Dawson, to me, still ha I mean, Turner to an extent, but I don't know where his head's at. Those are the ones that I think, pro and Fazeev is probably among them the ones I think most well-rounded well and, and uh, capable of doing something. But let's see what Armin's got this weekend. This is a huge fight for Saryukian, man. Huge fight. Not only would it be like very credibility uh, building for him to beat a guy, the quality of Benil Dariush, but um, he's got so much athleticism and so much wrestling and so much great control, and I've just not seen the development of the other pieces. Um, for him to be able to show something like that, I think would be extremely promising. What is he, 27 years old? So he's got a lot of time left to get there, but also, like, you know, if you can get to the top of the division still in your 20s, you just have this financially lucrative window to take advantage of that a lot of other guys never will. This is the problem. Like, most guys take until they're, like, early, slightly mid-ish 30s to really kind of turn that corner, but then by the time they get there, they've got a very short reign because 35 is barreling down on them, and here comes the next crop of 27-year-olds, and it's just very hard to hold on to. If you can really push yourself... To, I mean, this is why John Jones was so special... He got to the top of the division in his early 20s and then just held it. Now, of course, there were ups and downs, long pauses. You guys know the story, but my man was beating the shit out of people and winning titles, you know, barely old enough to vote. You know, just crazy, uh, crazy uh, lead on the rest of the game, on the rest of the division. So... What I've seen from these guys, like these, these, the, 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 all these ones you're mentioning, they've all got considerable skill, but they've all got real Ach uh, Achilles heels, and I've not seen, I've not seen enough uh, turning 
and getting around them. Like they came to the UFC with much more ready-made skills to win. That part is true. But then they haven't quite built on them the way that I thought they would with the speed that I thought they would. And I think that has given us some uneven results as a consequence. Luke, love the show. Is there a better fight currently on the books than Volk versus Taporia? What is the fight across combat sports that you're most looking forward to? So, on combat sports, ooh. Definitely in MMA, it's Volk versus Taporia. Definitely. Now, need I tell you about the caveat there? Need I tell you? Coming off the head kick KO. Now, apparently, Volkanovsky has reported that there has been sparring in camp. And he feels great about it. Um, he doesn't feel like there's any lingering issues. He feels strong. He feels good to go. I hope that's true. I hope that's true. Um, Taporia to me seems like this. Will, I, one never knows, but I feel like this will probably be okay. In the he had really two close fights with Max, two insanely close fights with Max. He had a really difficult, let's say, moment with Ortega, and he got dropped by Mendez, right? So these are all very, very difficult things to deal with. Uh, ten rounds with Max. Again, I know they fought a third time, but that was a one-way ass-kicking. The first two were not. Um, all of these are very, very difficult. So what I'm about to say is, you know, some, is certainly debatable, but I have a feeling... Taporia is going to be either the toughest fight of his career if he wins, or he's just going to lose outright. I don't. I don't see. I, I would be super surprised if Taporia just gets tooled in that one. Possible, certainly. I think unlikely. I think Taporia is a big problem for him. I think Taporia is naturally faster. He's certainly a heavier hitter. Um, he can his wrestling, both offensively and defensively, is. Excellent. His jiu-jitsu is very, very good. Now, Volkanovski is very good defensive jiu-jitsu, but I don't think he's got quite the... Um, he's not going to match him offensively. May not necessarily even need it, but uh, in terms of the way he fights, like he's not going to go for arm bars and shit like that. But um, in terms of the well-roundedness and the potency of what a guy like Taporia offers, there's just a lot of offensive threats you have to answer for. I think his faking and his fainting and setting up his boxing game is tremendous. His chin is ridiculous. He got hit with that head kick by Jai Herbert, survived it, and came back and then fucking sliced him in half up a weight class. His always power carries. Um, there's just lots of little details about what he does. Um, he is both technical and then he can apply force. Joe Silva one time said, Frank Mir is what happens when technique meets horsepower. For a guy at 145, that's what Taporia reminds me of. Like, look at him. Look at him just bully Bryce uh, Mitchell around. Bully him. Physically, like, return him to the mat. Like, very, you know, like everything is hard nose. Everything. Everything. Everything is fastball down the middle, man. Everything with him. Now, he, he was tapering it back a little bit with Josh Emmett. His ground and pound is good. His guard passing is good. Like, every everything about him is scary. Everything. Volk has a great game built around, obviously, getting guys confused about what he's doing. I think Tapori and his team are going to be studying tape 
like crazy. They're going to know his tendencies. There's a shitload of tape on him at this point. And of course, Volk has the ability to build in a lot of different directions and build new permutations and patterns and everything else. Volk is hardly some easy opponent to beat. Like when I say he's got a real shot at keeping his title, even at his advanced age, relatively speaking for this division, I think we should all take that very seriously. On the other hand, I think people looking the other way on Taporia being like, oh, he got rocked by Jai Herbert and he did this by that guy. I think it's a lot of copium that they're huffing. Uh, the tape on him to me seems deadly. Deadly. There, the, the, the number of ways in which he can hurt you, take you out, take advantage of you, anything is like what part of his offense sucks? Like what, or what part of his offense is even missing? You know, some versions are, some parts of it are better than others. Some parts integrate more nimbly than others. But what part of it is missing? Okay, you could say maybe he's not like the most dynamic fighter at kickboxing range. I guess you could say that. Um, sure, but I don't know how much time is really going to be spent there anyway. So that's, I think Volkanovski is going to have a hard time keeping him there. I think Volkanovski is going to do a, there will be a lot of wrestling in that fight, I think. Actually, a fair amount of uh, back and forth in that way. But um, that that one to me is... You've got arguably the best fighter in the sport, or you know one of the very best fighters in the sport, taking on a guy who has mowed through um, virtually every challenge. I know he didn't finish Josh Emmett, but he beat the bejesus out of him and is just dynamic basically everywhere. Young, fast, powerful. Shit, dude. That's what, that's what title fights are supposed to be. That's exactly what you want from them. You want some reigning king to have to answer for some kind of challenge where where like every sort of like or virtually every scenario you look at, it's like that's difficult, that's difficult, that's difficult. And that guy presents all of them. That's this fight. That's this fight. And it's a smaller weight class, which means you're just going to get better fighters in general. Like <clears throat> that's the one. In boxing, it would definitely be Canelo versus David Benavidez. I would take certainly Canelo versus Bud Crawford, but I don't know how that's going to go. I don't know if they're going to make that fight or not. I don't know, but like Canelo versus David Benavidez is the one for me, for sure. I think most people in boxing, that's the one. Um, I'm not super hyped on Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk as like a phenomenal fight. It's a very significant fight. I don't know if it's personally... A, I don't know if it's going to be the most like exciting contest, whereas I think Volk versus Taporia would be very exciting. Again, I'm not saying it's an MMA or boxing thing. I'm just sort of trying to figure out what the complexion of the fight would be. But yeah, it's probably something like that. I mean, I know there's going to rematch between um, Spence and Crawford. I hope that's more competitive than the first one. I don't really have super high hopes for that, but I guess we'll see. All right, let's go back. All right, here we go. Uh, look, you've mentioned many times that MMA fandom tends to be very short-lived, whereas boxing fandom tends to be more sticky. If big promoters are unable to cross this gap at some point, do you think this could limit the long-term potential of the sport? Um, I mean, here's the reality that I... Or I okay. Here is what I can best ascertain having been around MMA for a few of these rotations. The churn is real. Like, a lot of people are going out the door. Dude, I got an email yesterday from some guy. How many times have you heard me get on here and say, I get emails every week from someone being like, I'm kind of checking out of the sport. Dude, I get them. It's in no way an exaggeration when I say I get them every week and sometimes multiple times per week. Um, there's a lot of people who check out on MMA after a period of time, whatever that ends up being. 
But the reality is MMA is pretty good about bringing in a new crop. And so you're saying if big promoters are unable to cross this gap at some point, do you think this could limit the long-term potential? I don't know, man. Like MMA is pretty well fulfilled. I, I think there's a you know there's certainly more path to go. It's not that big yet in vast swaths of Asia. It's not that big yet in vast swaths of Africa, South America. Like it's there's a lot of room left to grow, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, but you know we've had big stars. Like there's a there's a big debate. Like it's hard to explain and appreciate this. But when Ronda and Connor were in, like in 2016, they felt like what we call crossover stars. There's our sport, and then there are people who reach the next level of stardom, and it magnifies them, of course, and it magnifies the whole sport in a way that you don't normally feel. And it feel it felt very weird and real at that time. Like, wow, there's a enormous spotlight on us. Um, and it, you know, some of the benchmarks we would use to describe that it's like, oh, you know, these guys are going to be in Sports Center and you know, uh, not just pay-per-view buy rates, but like just all these sort of like cultural markers. But the reality is that MMA has kind of ascended to a point where it's not necessarily that we're reaching all of those same cultural markers, but, you know, it's not unusual to see MMA on ESPN anymore. It's not unusual to see MMA fighters on someone's big name podcast. It's not unusual to see them, um, you know, referenced in someone's rap lyrics or something. Like you see them in all these ways that, are much more ordinary that used to be much rarer. And so I'm not saying that everyone is as big as Conor McGregor. That's obviously quite silly. But what I am saying is the sport has kind of leveled up in a way that, again, it's not to argue that it couldn't be bigger, but it's already reached that kind of a point where I don't think it can be a whole lot bigger. I think the sport could be bigger in terms of the, the worldwide participatory rate and then finding big and then having big stars in, 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 in more kinds of markets. I think that part's true. Like Taporia is blowing up Spain and um, Drikas Duplessis is blowing up South Africa and all this different stuff. I think you'll get more of that kind of a thing, which is great. But in terms of like what ultimate height it could actually reach, I don't know if there's a whole lot further, barring obviously some transcendental figure who will be uh, you know a shooting star and then when they're gone, the sport kind of just sort of resumes its natural place. MMA has ascended very far. There's, it's not a whole lot further as a popular attraction that it could go um, in terms of its ultimate peak. You know, you just have to ask yourself, what would it get? What, what would we have to do to get another like three? What would we have to do to get another? Th- uh, we've had one. No, we haven't had the highest one is two and some change, right? For a buy rate. What would we have to get for three or four? What would what, what would that look like? Who would that have to be? Is it just more people fighting? I, I Perhaps. Um, but I think that you've got a certain level of cultural relevance now that is ingrained that just didn't used to exist before that makes me sort of question like, oh, it's got so much more to go. It's gone pretty far. Look, if GSP came back while Habib was still fighting and they fought at either 165 or 70, who would you pick? Um, it's impossible to say because I don't know how they're training. I, I, yeah, I don't know. That's really hard to say. Let's go back. Ooh, this is a long one. Here we go. All right, I'll do my best with this one. Luke, Dr. Mike Isretel, he's he's a beast. Recently released a video describing why some elite athletes poorly incorporate weightlifting into their training, even if it confers benefits, okay? Amongst the primary reasons described... Uh, Mike believes it is due to some athletes self-directing their training and as a result may not be privy to the most effective methods. That sounds right. 
He also believes that some athletes prioritize short-term recovery and lack of soreness for practicing within their conventional sports over the long-term benefits of weightlifting. I know you personally are unlikely to know this information, but perhaps in the future, if you interview Phil DeRue or have him on for a live chat, perhaps you could discuss how self-directed weight training is amongst fighters in the industry and the standard of consistency. Yeah, I suspect that's correct. Uh, MMA is a fairly individualistic and niche sport. You'll see greater variance in weightlifting methods applied than compared to other sports. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to Phil about this a little bit, not this exact topic, but like, I've asked him, like, why don't a lot of fighters do very coordinated strength and conditioning? And his answer is, like, they'd rather just practice their sport. Um, they don't really want to do it. So even if they do it, they'll do it half-assed. They'll do it, or they might try hard, but they don't really know the best way to program for it, how to program it along with the rest of their training. And so it ends up being this sort of confused admixture where they're really just getting suboptimal gains the whole time. And then they look back and like, well, why did I even weight train? What did I really get from that? And the reality is, if you're gonna, <clears throat> if you're an elite athlete, you have to have this kind of stuff very ironed out. <coughs> Excuse me. By professionals who know how to not just program the weight training, but program it in conjunction with um, everything else you're doing. Apologies, goddamn. <clears throat> uh, this is an easy one. With both Jamal and Yeri both relinquishing the light heavyweight title as soon as they were injured, why do you think that John Jones hasn't done the same with heavyweight once he was injured? Because I don't think he gives a fuck. <laughs> like, it's pretty obvious, right? I think he's probably done after his next fight, and he needs... I mean, would you not watch it if John Jones gave up the title? I'm sure most of us would watch, but certainly it carries a little bit more value, maybe perhaps a significant more value, depending on your perspective. If he competes with the, with the heavyweight title, eventually who it ends up being. That's why. He just, and the UFC is not going to make him, apparently. So why would you? I suspect that the UFC leaned on Jamal or Yuri, and perhaps not. But I'm just saying, uh, if push came to shove, they let's put it this way. Either they did, or if push came to shove, they probably would. In this case, the UFC doesn't have the same kind of market incentive to do that, considering they want to... I guess they want to keep the John Jones Stipe thing alive. And so they're not going to make him. And they're just going to have Tom fight uh, whoever the fuck. And it's it's amazing to me, man. Did you guys see Tom Aspinall? I think he was on something called Talk Sport in London. He was like, oh, man, boxing is this. Boxing is that. Heavyweight boxing. The model is all fucked up. I'm like, I'm like Tom. Tom's amazing, right? I love Tom. Like, I'm so glad he's the interim champ. I, I can't wait for him to fight. It's like, my guy, you got to look around. There's going to be a full-on unification for an undisputed title in February in heavyweight boxing, 2023 has been nothing but high-profile fights, including a bunch of bangers beneath that. It's not just the high-profile ones. Like, there's been consistently great um, boxing throughout the course of the year. There's been some some duds, too, of course, but it's been a really, really strong year. Meanwhile, he uh, is being locked out of his promoter from fighting the guy who's got the heavyweight, his own promoter from fighting the guy who's got the heavyweight title. And he... I, now, maybe they'll make the Miocic fight. I don't think they will. And obviously, if John Jones isn't going to fight Francis Ngannou, then he can't fight him. So he just has to sojourn through the rest of the division of whoever's available with this interim title until they're just done with this John Jones last hurrah. And it's like, of all the criticisms to make about heavyweight boxing or boxing in general, dude, like this is the worst time and then the, the least applicable scenario in which to be making them. Strange. Uh, okay, let's go to this one. 
Uh, Aljamain Sterling announced... Yeah, you can read it. Aljamain Sterling announced on Demetrius Johnson's podcast that his next fight is going to be at 145, okay? And he wants Max Holloway, right? Your thoughts on this matchup uh, or if there's a better first fight at 145 for him? Shooting for the stars, right? Trying to go for a big name. I don't think there's anything bad about that. Aljo stated it's the fastest way to a title shot, but in my opinion, this is one of the toughest introductions in the division. High risk, high reward for Aljo, but doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense for Max to take it outside of staying active. I doubt Max wants it all that much, although one never knows. If they don't if they don't give him the Gaethje fight, then perhaps he'll entertain it. I don't know. Um, I don't think Aljamain's game is going to change too much in terms of its complexion between 135 and 145, right? Striking on the outside, sticking and moving, um, trying to return you to your hands to get to the back, trying to take you down to get to the back, and then work from there. I do think his back skills would probably carry up uh, a weight class, no doubt about it. Max Holloway has phenomenal takedown, division, uh, takedown defense. I don't know if he's dealt with the kind of backpacking threat that that Aljo presents, but I do think he's well-schooled. In, I mean, obviously, he's an insanely decorated veteran. Um, I, I would be interested in seeing the fight, to be honest with you. I'd be interested in seeing it. I don't know how much appetite there is for it. I don't know if that's the best fight that the UFC wants. I don't really know exactly how that goes. Like, in other words, if you offered it to me, I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll take that. I wouldn't necessarily seek it out, but... Uh, it's a fine fight. Aljamain, former champion. Max, former champion. They're both still in their early 30s. I think Aljamain's still in his early 30s. Um, still looking to make way into getting another title shot. It's He's right. That's a pretty fast way. I just feel like there's going to be a physicality difference with Max. Again, he's very technical with his takedown defense. Good with his jab. Good with his positioning. Um, good with his counters. Good with his timing. I think it's going to make hard for someone like Aljo to consistently get off uh, and do what he wants to do. Um, and I think he could get to uh, Max's back, but I think that it's going to be a little bit harder to you know return a guy like that to the mat to to in order to do it, um, or arm drag him or whatever the case. Max has got really good, very sturdy, doesn't let you build at all kind of takedown defense. Like his down blocking and ability to break uh, grips is excellent. You know, really really strong. So. I would favor Max in that contest. I admire Aljamain's guts. I don't again. I don't know what the UFC is really going to do with that, but it's a fine fight. It's a fine fight. Uh, someone asked me like, what would be a great fight for him at 145? Like him versus Ortega would be kind of cool. I'd be I'd be psyched to see something like that. You know, that to me seems a little more fun. Um, but I guess we'll see. You know. All right. Uh, yes, you can see. Here we go. Luke, do you think the recent back and forth between Ian Gary and Sean Strickland has damaged Ian? Uh, somewhat, yeah. As far as looking weak to his audience, whose audience? Sean's audience? Or his, his leaked chats between himself and Sean perceiving him to be a bitch to at least, oh, to at least Sean's audience. Well, I mean, I don't know how much it matters that, like, does it really matter if like a guy you don't like's audience doesn't like you? I mean, I suppose that could matter. It's not the end of the world. Um, that's not the biggest thing. I mean, here's the thing about me for the story. Like, I, we haven't really touched on it because I just don't think it's got much newsworthy value. Uh, it's got a little bit. Um, there is some to it, but not much. It's pretty thin. It's mostly just like... Well, here's the thing, dude. I mean, he makes everything public. Um, including his life, and then you just invite a certain level of scrutiny that's going to not be what you like. Uh, he, here's my here's my takeaway from the whole situation. It's not much of a story that people tried to turn things into. Now, I'm not saying 
you have to like Ian Gary. Like, in fact, in fact, here's what I would say: the the big lesson that I've taken from this is there's a lot of fucking people who hate Ian Gary. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot there, and 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 not just because of this situation, but it seemed to me pent up. There's a lot of people who had like pent up Ian Gary hate for whatever reason, and I've seen some of the reasons listed, like, oh, he was shitty to Neil Magny and this kind of stuff. It's like, all right, like that wasn't great, but like people will like look the other way on some dude taking money from a warlord or saying horrendous shit about, you know, uh, some racist ass shit in some other direction, and like nobody cares about it. It's like. You want me to believe you're this? I'm not even saying you can't be angry about the stuff he did with Neil Magny. I'm just saying, like, the level of, like, to which people are, like, really mad about it. It's like, dude, it's not Michael Vick. He's not drowning dogs. I mean, you can hate him or whatever, but, like, just chill for a bit. But whatever the case, it just seems to me like there's a lot of people that either through this episode, magnifying it, or uh, from other stuff, there's just a lot of, like, pent-up, Ian Gary hate that's been released here. I think it's starting to calm down a little bit. Um, you know, so has he looked bad to Sean Strickland's audience? I guess for whatever that is worth. The thing that I think the tragic, I mean, there's a couple mistakes I think he's made. One is just sort of like filming everything and putting his life out there. It's like you're just inviting a level of scrutiny from folks that you just you put that kind of stuff out into the world and they're going to they're going to do stuff with it that you're not prepared for and whether or not they're treating it in good faith or just, you know, doing prurient fucking jacking off with it to, you know, invent some reason for sexual humiliation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, they're going to take it and they're going to do something with it. And, you know, it's a little bit of what's what's happened. The thing is, like, when he messaged... I did see some of the messages he sent Sean. Be like, you know, this is this is legally actionable. I'm like, dude, you know, I'm not even... I don't, I don't know what a lawyer would say about any of that. I have no idea, but... Just in terms of like messaging Sean Strickland and imagining that's not going to go public, or or imagining that it will go public and then this will reflect well within this broader community or his audience or whatever, just seems like a profound miscalculation. So, um, listen, I don't have a feeling about Ian Gary one way or the other. I try to just monitor. I don't care. I don't, dude. I've never woken up and been like, wow, who is, who is Ian Gary fucking? You know, I really, <laughs> I really wonder. I really wonder who he's fucking if they're also fuck I mean I've never it's you know I wonder about his marriage it's never crossed my mind you know um so if you have a reason to dislike him or he rubs you the wrong way fans get to pick who they like or don't like fine like no issue I don't care I just think to me the lesson I've taken from this is like for whatever reason good bad true false whatever that dude has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way um at least right now but I will say this and it sounds implausible not that I've seen anything quite like th- every situation's unique, good, bad, or indifferent. But you'd be surprised how much um, somebody can look horrible one year and then three years later win them all back. You know, uh, I'm not necessarily predicting that. I, I mean, at a time like this, I would not predict that. Um, and by the way, I've heard things from people being like, "Oh, Ian Gary and his wife are great," and then I've heard from other folks being like, "Oh, Ian Gary and his wife are terrible." I have no clue. I don't. I don't know them. You know, so I don't know them. But. Um, yeah, there was some pent-up uh, hostility about the dude, you know? All right, here we go. Uh, oh, I missed this one. There. Uh, thoughts on the late-minute replacement between Green and Turner? We kind of talked a little bit about that earlier. 
any insight into the reason behind the scuffle between Bobby and Armin? Somebody probably said something silly and then someone overreacted. I don't know. The Jalen Turner thing kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. We talked about this on MK a little bit, right? Because he... Um, he had the two losses, which were close, the split decision to Gamrot and Hooker. But then the stuff he said this week, man, I'm telling you, if you guys didn't see Jalen Turner's media day, man, you should you should see it. You do not get super awesome vibes from it. And again, there's a couple of things he says that could be interpreted one way or the other. So we should also be careful about that. Um, but I don't get a good vibe. Dude, if you are having two losses in a row in the UFC and then you take another fight on short notice. To me, that's like... It would have to be what the really good matchup for you. For me, like if I was a coach, and I'm not, but if I was or a trusted advisor, a manager, whatever, and I had a fighter like Jalen who was in his circumstance, especially if like weight was going to be an issue too, and they were like, should I take this fight? I'd be like, mm, I think this man you want, might want to pass. Now, again, he he even says he felt like he couldn't say no, which is hard to interpret. Like, maybe they came back and gave him a great offer. I don't know. Maybe they bullied him. I don't know. Uh, but you don't get a great vibe from it. It's just like, you know, Bobby Green uh, you know, is, is a tough guy to beat, especially if you're overweight, drained on short notice. Like, I'm not even predicting necessarily that Turner will lose. I'm just saying of all the things... Of, for him to be in the circumstance that he's in, the kinds of circumstances that he'd have to be entering into as an advisor for him, for me to feel comfortable, I would I would say no in this one. I would say no. Granted, I'm a little bit more risk-averse than the typical MMA manager, but do you guys get a great vibe from everything? Not that he's not talented. The kid is very talented. He's skilled. But I don't know, man. When people are saying shit like... When people are like saying things that make you go, go what at, at media day sometimes they're in their own head a little bit and sometimes it's just I would say more often than not it's a prelude to some kind of disaster not always but most of the time okay here's one how do you see Chimaev's inability to fight in the US affecting his career slash relationship with the UFC if at all it's a great question, man. Moreover, are you starting to get the feeling that his career might end up being a cautionary tale more than a triumphant one? I don't know about that. It's starting to look like there are more ways for this to end badly for him than not. I don't, I don't know why you get that opinion. Who knows how much of his personality he shows the media is genuine versus how much is just keeping Kadir up happy. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, you're saying it's a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale will be a situation where someone elects to take a series of very questionable decisions that they don't really have to. And we don't know what the situation is, but it is reasonable to assume, or at least consider, that keeping Kadyrov happy, to the point you're talking about, Ramzan Kadyrov, as a matter of life and death, either for his family or or whoever, if that's really what's driving his decision-making, then he doesn't have much of a choice at all, does he? This is not the same as someone who is unencumbered by these things, and then electing to just step on rakes no matter where he goes. That doesn't seem, or at a bare minimum, we don't we don't know if that's what he's entering into here. So cautionary tale, I mean, dude, if you feel like you're under the thumb of a murderous dictator, it's not really a cautionary tale, is it? It's more of like a, you know, I don't have a goddamn choice kind of scenario. 
uh, if that if that's in fact what it is. Now maybe it's not. Maybe he just is kind of you know that's just who he is. I don't really know, but it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to parse those things. Um, but I don't think cautionary tale is quite the right word. Now you're asking the bigger one, which is how much if he can't actually enter the U.S., how much does that affect his popularity and what it could mean? It, so ordinarily, I would call that a death sentence. Ordinarily, if this were ten years ago or more, I'd call it a death sentence. And the reason why is because pay-per-view is a North American, predominantly, not entirely, but predominantly a North American phenomenon. Australia contributes a little bit. UK's got something like it, but it's predominantly uh, US and Canada. And you have to compete in those markets or around those markets with their media and their the kind of attention that they can bring in order to maximize results, right? So... If you really want to appeal the most to, let's say, American pay-per-view buying audiences, you have to compete in New York. You have to compete in L.A. You have to do something on a big pay-per-view in that way. However, the Middle East has been a bit of an interesting bridge for them, the UFC and, and some of these fighters, right? Where they're able to hold these cards in Dubai with big names on it. Big names for that part of the world, but big names in the sport. Islam Makachev is... You know, pound for pound and number one on your list are pretty close. Like, he's an enormously relevant fighter, right? Um, Habib fought in this place. Like, Hamzat fought there. Like, big names are fighting there. And, you know, it's probably a bit of a trade-off to have those fights in the afternoon, but the pay-per-views still do well in general, at least well enough. And so, if he's never able to re-enter the U.S., I do think that will that could limit him. Yes, I do. That will hurt him a little bit. On the other hand, they have more markets now and more ways to cater to their broader global audience than they ever had before. And they've got a global audience in ways that they haven't had before. That it's not nearly as, uh, it's not nearly as much of a um, limiting factor as I think it once has been. So if this were 2010 and you can't get into the U.S., you're in deep trouble. I know Penn fought Edgar in 2010 in um, Yaz Island, right? Remember, you guys remember Yaz Island? Uh, but that was, you know, a one-off or a rare thing at the time. Now it's a, you know, Fight Island, whatever, uh, Dubai and the Emirates. This is, a, this, is a, this is a rotation. This is part of the rotation. That changes things. Um, and assuming he's still able to get into parts of Europe, that's still going to be valuable for him as well. I don't know what the story is there either, so... Um, so it, it could affect him. Yes. Um, but not nearly like it once would have, it would have been disaster before. Not anymore. Um, favorite Lebanese food, man, whatever my mom made, my mom used to make fucking killer tabouli hummus, shish tauk. Um, I mean, you name it. Um, baba ganoush. I mean, all the sort of, all the staples, you know, my mom would make. I mean, I'm not saying like crazy uh you can get these foods at almost Lebanese any Lebanese restaurant but my mom would make it fresh how was my experience in Lebanon dude Lebanon was weird man it was beautiful it, don't get me wrong it was I, I'm so glad that I went it was Lebanon's a just a crazy place um both for good and bad um all the street signs in downtown Beirut they're all in like they're all in English French and Arabic like everything you know all this, all uh, there's so much like mixed 
culture there. Uh, and again, part of that's colonialism, I get. But like, still, it's a lot of mixed culture there. Um, the people, to me, I'll just tell you how they were to me. They were insanely friendly. Um, the guy who was... Uh, the fuck hotel did we stay in? <sighs> Forget the name of it. The guy who was the concierge who helped us the whole time. His name was literally Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Um, he was super friendly. So many people spoke English. Um, we got to see the, so many different parts of the city. And then again, we went to Biblos, um, which was just this incredible historical tour. Um, what was the name of the bay that we went to? Um, what was the name of that? Uh, forget the name. There was this bay that was just outside of Beirut, maybe a couple of hours, and there was this like Christian statue, and you actually they actually made women like cover up, even though it was, you know it wasn't Islamic in any way, but they still made women cover up, like it's a show of modesty. Um, and then and uh, and at the top of it, you had this just incredible view, and you know, totally multicultural world. I went to like the Jeddah Grotto, which is like this underground. It's like the Ray Caverns if you're from the this area. Um, but but bigger and cooler, and then you know the food is absolutely spectacular. The service was next level. The thing that was weird was you got to remember like Beirut was ravaged by civil war, and what was kind of weird was like you would see places. Here's the best way I can describe it. Beirut to me kind of feels like this is not quite right, but this is feels to me a little bit like if I had to like compare it not to an American city. Let me just say it this way. The, the traditional Beirut that had hung on kind of felt like New Orleans where it was this melting pot of all these different cultures. And then the parts that were ravaged, there was a all, all these people tried to rebuild it. In fact, there was a shopping center. It was empty when I went. It was just like, the, I mean, the nicest mall you've ever seen in your life, okay? The clock tower at the center of this place was built by Rolex and it had a giant Rolex sign on it, you know? And I remember thinking, like, God damn, like, this is, like, the nicest shit. I don't know who's shopping at these places, but it's nice, you know? And, like, all these, like, you know, really rich ladies going there to get their hair done at these, like, fancy places. So it was, like, this weird mix where, like, the old Beirut was, like, all New Orleans. And then there'd be these new parts that felt more like Miami. Right? Because Miami's a bit of a cultural melting pot as well. But it's got a lot more showmanship about it. It's a lot flashier. Uh, it's a lot more modern and, you know, everything is sort of designed to be ultra modern, ultra sleek, ultra fast and beautiful. And whereas like older Beirut felt much more like uh, like cultural institutions that um, maybe had a different heyday, but still had modern relevance and value. So it was this weird kind of clash between, I mean, if you've ever been to New Orleans, Miami, and if you've never been, this won't, I don't know what this comparison will mean to you, but but if you have been, you'll know what I'm talking about. So it was really weird. It was really weird, but I was glad I got to go. My mom attended the American University of Beirut. I got to walk through the campus. I got to walk through the campus bookstore. I bought a t-shirt and a mug there. I got to go to all these places where she attended class. It's beautiful. AUB is right on the other side. Just a, The Mediterranean is just on the other side of it. You can walk down all of these. Um, there's, there's cats everywhere, which is kind of weird, but you can walk to all these different places. Dude, Lebanon is the shit. I mean, they, they, have, they have ruined themselves. And Beirut, you know, they, they have ruined that. And, uh, you know, and of course they have, they, by the way, like you can't, get, if you have an Israeli stamp in your passport, you can't get in. And they check. You can't, they'll turn your ass right around at the airport because they actually never declared, they never declared an end to their war with them. Um, 
back from what 2006 or whatever so even before that probably but but um they they never declared an end to it so if you have an israeli stamp in your pay even if you like it's an old one like oh i went there like seven years ago nah bitch they're sending you home you won't you can't you can't get in um but you know the lebanese were just the nicest people in the world and uh, it was cool man we hired this driver to take us to the jetta grotto and uh, when we came out um he was playing backgammon with uh some other dude he knew waiting for us and it was just this cool scene i don't know how to describe it it was like this cool scene where you know seeing a bunch of like uh you know native lebanese two two lebanese men playing backgammon in this like beautiful weather at this like you know cultural um sort of geological place i don't know it kind of it touched me man it was it was special and also what was really kind of special was my wife was pregnant with my daughter when we were there and um it was actually funny. I, I, what the fuck was the name of the hotel that we were in? Oh, someone messaged me. Hang on. Okay, I will do that. Um, Aunt sent me a note. Aunt, I see the note. I will I will do it. There was this... Uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. I do want to show you this. Real quick. So my wife was so sick the whole time we were there. Like, the whole time we were there, right? She was pregnant with my daughter. And... Uh, she was like, go find me something to eat. So I walked down. Uh, here we go. Here is Alfred Nobel Street. See that? All the signs are in Arabic, French, and English. Um, let me show you this. Yeah, all the cats at AUB. And I found, and I was walking, and I was walking, and I was walking, and I found this place that made, I'm not bullshitting you, empanadas and arepas. Arepas. And I walked in there. I'm like, y'all make arepas? And they're like, yeah, they, got, they were all Venezuelans. <laughs> they had fled Venezuela and somehow ended up in Lebanon of all places. And some dude opened up a spot. Yo, the food was righteous. It was really, really, really good. Um, what was the name of this joint? Yeah, this was outside of the... Uh, hang on just a second. This was outside of that uh, place I was telling you guys about, of that mall. This was the I Love Beirut sign. See that? Uh, and there was just all kinds of people there. Yeah, this was the part I was telling you about. So, this was like a place completely rebuilt. None of this used to exist. Ah, fuck me. Hold on, what was the name of this joint? This was the place I went to. I cannot remember the name of it. You could walk up the top of it. And there was a Christian sort of statue at the top. And you were allowed to go in there. It was like a church. The whole nine. Look at the spread of... Uh, so my wife ordered um, fruit. And this is what they brought. Just just a table full of fruit. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, this is the, the, it took us to the Jetta Grotto. And... Um, oh, yeah, it was on Hamra Street. On Hamra Street was where I found the uh, the... A rapist joint. I, I'm, I'm wasting time here, but you get the idea. Luke, your favorite strain of Delta 2000. <laughs> um, dude, if they had Delta 2000, I'd be all over it. But they ain't got it. All right, let's go back to this. How about this one? Luke, I've been going back and watching some Mike Brown fights. Would you be able to speak a little bit about him as a fighter and how his experience has translated into him becoming a great coach? 
So Mike Brown was the everyone thinks that it was Jose Aldo who was the one to dethrone Uriah Faber and like take his popularity. And like on some level their fight was really, really big and important, and that's sort of true. But actually it was Mike Brown. Let me explain. Let me pull up his record. So Mike Brown, here's a little fun fact for you guys. Mike Brown is the first guy I ever interviewed. He was the first one. Um, let me pull up his record here and then show you what he did. Here we go. So by the time he got to the UFC, he was kind of just completely done and it didn't really work for him. However, here was the run that really mattered to me. So he fought in deep. He fought in some of these smaller shows, Bodog fight, hook and shoot. Then he goes to the WEC in 2008. He fights Big Frog. You guys know who Big Frog is. Jeff Curran beats him. Pat Curran, or Jeff Curran. Pat Curran's, uh, I think this is his uncle or whatever. Um, so he beats him. Then he fights Uriah Faber for the WBC, the WBC featherweight title in November at WEC 36 Faber versus Brown and ices him inside of a round. Just stops him. And they're like, well, how did that happen? Then he fights Leonard Garcia. If you've never seen the Leonard Garcia fight, holy fucking shit, dude. Mike Brown hits Leonard Garcia. By all means, do not take what I am telling you at face value. Please double check it. Mike Brown hits Leonard Garcia so hard with a single shot, a punch. It lifts him off of his feet. Okay? And then he finished him off with a head and arm triangle with, like, brutal power he did that inside of a round. Okay, that was in the first round as well. Absolutely crushes him. Then they do the Uriah Faber rematch. Like, okay, let's get let's get Faber another title shot. Nope. Beats him in a five-round decision. Beats him twice. So before Jose Aldo ever even got a crack at this, Mike Brown had just kind of taken over the WEC. Because remember, like, Faber was the face of the WEC. Here comes Mike Brown from some of these like smaller shows, the AFCs and the hook and shoots and the Bodog fights, and then comes in and just starts walloping people. He'd already beaten, by the way, Eves Edwards back in 2006. Edwards, by the way, you know, part of the early 155 division at UFC before they closed it temporarily for a little while. Like, dude, he had good wins on his record. And then he goes through and has this insane streak. And then I'll never forget... Um, my wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, we were watching it. This was November of 2019. We're actually at her apartment, which was near, actually not far from the Pentagon. Um, and uh, near Pentagon City, anyway, which is a mall, which is next to it. It's on the other side of the mall. And we were watching it. She was a big Jose Aldo fan, an MMA fan at the time. And, dude, Jose Aldo beat this motherfucker <laughs> from pillar to post. I mean, I was like, I, I kind of thought Jose would win. Like, you knew he was really good. But I was like, okay, but Mike Brown, like, look what this fucking guy's doing. Like, he, he just dusted off Uriah and, like, smashed Leonard. And then Uriah got a second crack, and he still couldn't do shit. And he was technical. He was powerful. He was so strong for that weight class. I'll never forget that. Phenomenal takedown defense. Like, he could do it all. And then Jose Aldo just absolutely toyed with him. Toyed with him. And, um, you know, he never quite got back to what he was after that. He beat a guy named Anthony Morrison, who I, I know. Anthony Morrison, his nickname was Cheesesteak. And the reason why that's relevant is he actually knocked out a friend of mine, Seth Smith. I was at that fight. That fight was in a converted pool hall in Fredericksburg, Virginia. That's a true story. Fuck, back in... Is that fight even on his record, dude? Let me see. Is that fight even on his fucking record? No. 
I don't know when that fight was, but he knocked out my boy, um, Seth. So this was like, dude, this, I don't know when that fight was. I mean, no, it's not even on here, right? Nope. Sure ain't. Damn, dude. That was a long time. Eddie Fivey, that was another guy's name out of New Jersey that we used to know real well. Yeah, so he knocked out my guy. He knocked out my guy, Seth Smith, at a pool converted pool hall in Fredericksburg, Virginia. This must have been, I don't know. Oh, oh, this was, I don't know, 03, 04, something, whatever that was. And um, so he beat him, and he had some other nice wins along the way. But it was that stretch in WC after he had come over and then fought Big Frog. That was when everything kind of took off. And so he was just this physical force out of ATT that I don't think even I don't think even WEC th- thought he was going to do what he did, but it didn't matter because you're like, oh, he's the he's the and okay, so he beats Faber, so now he's the guy. And then Aldo came in like like a fucking avalanche and just started beating every. If you've never seen Jose Aldo take the title from Mike Brown, you would look at Mike Brown and be like, dude, this guy's not very good. Fuck off, fuck off. Yes, he was. It's just that Jose Aldo was, you know. Have you guys, I don't know what the Europeans might say, have you ever seen someone in high school who play whatever sport they're in, football, whatever it is, then eventually get to like the pros? Like somebody get to the NBA, somebody get to the NFL, whatever. If you ever saw that person in high school, you're like, oh, right. Like, the, the, dude, it, it's, okay, did you guys see Ichiro? We talked about this on MK a little bit. Ichiro Suzuki. My man's like old and like retired now, and he played like a women's Japanese baseball team, and he fucking pitched a shutout on them, right? It's like that. It's like when you watch somebody who eventually goes to the pros, but they're still like, you know, 18 or 19, and they're just absolutely clobbering. I mean, these poor kids who are ordinary or even good athletes, they're not on the level of, you know, the kinds that make it to the professional ranks. They're, they're, They're just doing their best. They're getting absolutely fucking shelled or run over what it is. That's that's kind of like what Jose Aldo did to WEC. I mean, that's not quite right, obviously, because, you know, he fought to a decision with Faber. But, you know, he was just beating the shit out of these dudes. And even I thought Mike Brown would, like, you know, make it competitive, and even he couldn't. And so, you know, you're asking more about the Mike Brown side than the Aldo side. Um, but that run, that run from Dustin Nice basically, to Uriah Faber, that was a hell of a run by him. Let's get a couple more of these in, then we're going to switch over. Oh, look at that. Do we not just get to this, Luke? Why does it seem like there haven't been any crossover stars in the MMA in recent years comparable to Conor, Brock, and Ronda? Is it just incidental, or is there something about the industry that has changed? I think there's a good news and a bad news about this. The good news is that the level of acclaim and popularity and and general pop culture sensibilities uh, and how MMA plays a role in that, it's greater than I've ever seen it in my life. And so in some ways, the ascension has kind of already happened. On the other hand, pay-per-view, while still very, very, very significant and important, is simply not what it once was. And I think the UFC's business model allows it these days, and this is, you know, you have to be careful about this, but it allows it to be more plug and play uh, than it once used to be. Um, They don't need some kind of larger-than-life figure to do enormous business. Not that they wouldn't necessarily take one, but they they don't really need one. They just need the kinds of people who can keep the roster at the space that the roster's in. 
Um, and so I think it's a little bit of both. There's a good side to that story, which is, hey, MMA is great. Dude, if anybody was watching Mike Brown beat Dustin Nice, right, it, to see where MMA is at now is like it's impossible to comprehend. Like it's so much further than we – we used to fucking get, get giddy when we would see, oh, so-and-so's highlight reels made the Sports Center's top 10, you know, number nine or whatever. You know, and you'd be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And we're just so far past that. We're just so far past that. And so in some level, it makes what crossing over means just a rare or, or, or a less relevant question. On the other hand, the kind of heights that Ronda reached, the kind of heights that Connor reached have not really been replicated by anybody else. Um, even though, like, you've got other people who've gotten much further than they ordinarily would have been in a different era. Um, because of the nature of MMA's overall popularity and UFC's ascension. Um, I don't know... Th- I'm not, again, the people are like, oh, the UFC doesn't want to create stars. Well, that's not quite true, right? They do want people who can do well on pay-per-view. They do want people who can you know, garner and galvanize big audiences. That's not, that's not really true. But do they need the kind of guy who is... Um, you know, what Conor once represented or something? Uh, not as Not as much as they used to. Not nearly as much. All right, let me see if there's anything else on here before we get to the paid stuff. Uh, I get this one a lot. Could you see WME creating its own network in the near future to be the broadcaster of WWE, UFC, and potentially other combat sports entities? That they could bring into their umbrella. It seems like the obvious next step to me. I mean, here's one thing that does seem likely. There will be a contraction in the media rights fees business. Like all the money that these companies have been handing out to all these places. Like there's a contraction coming big time. Uh, I don't know when that's going to hit. I don't know what it's going to look like. Did you guys, um, do you guys know who, who Amin El Hassan is? Amin Al Hassan, I think, worked in the front office of the Phoenix Suns for a time. Now he works for Dan Levitard. He does basketball analysis. Did you guys see Mark Cuban is looking to sell to Sheldon Adelson, or at least the Sheldon Adelson estate, uh, the Dallas Mavericks? Now, even if he sold it, I think he bought it for like 250 mil, which in 2000 would equate to like 500 mil this, 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 uh, this year. So he's going to get like a $3 billion like return on his investment. But okay, he would still retain basketball operational control. But he would sell, he wants to sell the Dallas Mavericks basically. And what El Hassan believes is that he is doing that because he can see that the bubble is about to pop in the sports rights market. I mean, these entities are paying enormous sums to these leagues for the rights to their footage. And they're not really with, with, Streaming not really providing. Everyone thought that streaming. Wow, if you can get streaming on your phone, think about what kind of access you can get to how many audiences. And the problem is, for every forty million people you sign up, forty million leave the next month. The churn and turnover rate is extraordinary. So the money in streaming to justify some of these price tags is simply not there. At some point, that has to give. Um, And so, to answer that question, as long as that's in play, I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world. It looks like Endeavor, after being public for like what? the shortest amount of time ever is about to go back to being private. Variety magazine reports that Silver Lake, which has a 71 uh, controlling share of the company is like, nah, fuck it. We're done with this. We're taking it back private. It's not official, but it seems like it's guaranteed. And so I don't know exactly what that would mean for like even wanting to create a streaming service. How would it look like? Would people really want it? Is that enough of a bundle to make it work? 
But if the if there's a collapse in the media rights fees business, it certainly makes that a, a lot more interesting and a lot more noteworthy to pay attention to. My hunch is that they won't do it, but let's see what happens when the market bursts. Because, dude, there's a contraction coming. There's a contraction coming, a big one. Okay, let me get one more in, and then I'm going to go. I know we didn't do a chat last week, so let me just do one more here. Watching the choices by PFL, i.e. digging heels in around no elbows, keeping Bellator, makes me think of other brands in different spaces that have to compete with a dominant force and will not make changes to their business model despite cries from consumers and media alike. Do they just want to die on a hill of point of, of difference? In your opinion, what is it about their business, excuse me, what is it about other businesses that insist on snatching defeat from the jaws of victory? Man, I'm so glad you said this. I'm so glad you asked this. I don't know what the fuck they're thinking. Candidly, I don't really know what they're thinking. So if you saw the results today or the, the press release that was put out by PFL and ESPN, they said that they have a new multi-year agreement. Great. What's it going to cover? Well, regular season tourney, playoff tourney, world championships, and this, they call it the pay-per-view super fight division. So Jake Paul, Francis, whatever, right? Which they haven't really launched yet in an, with an actual fight, but okay. But, all right, well, what about PFL Europe? Okay, that, that's going to stay on the zone. Okay. Well, where is are these other PFL subsidies, subsidiary brands going to go? What about the Challenger series that they had, which aired on Fubo? What, like, is that going to stay there? And then what? there was no mention of Bellator. Like, where the fuck is that going to go? So, like, let's, let me see if I understand something. Someone asked me, are we going to see Cedric Dumbay? And it's like, well, I don't know. I don't know if he stays on PFL Europe and they didn't even have a fucking, you know, a legal way for you to see if you're an American Cedric Dumbay fight, despite having what a seven second KO for his debut. Um, and who else? They, uh, Abdurragamov, they didn't have anything for him either, right? Even the, the Lazy King, the two weight world champion out of Aries, you couldn't see him either. You know, it's like we're going to keep him on PFL Europe. It's like, dude, what the fuck? Please tell me, what the fuck is the point of buying Bellator in order to put it in places that, for now, no one can find? I don't understand that. Guys, if you're buying Bellator, you sure as fuck are not buying it for the IP. It doesn't have any value, right? Like, I saw Mike Kogan on MMA Hour being like, oh, we got to Showtime, and Showtime was a dead network. Mm. I love Mike. I know Mike well. I, I like Mike. But that's just not true, dude. In Bellator on Paramount Network before going to CBS Sports Network before going to Showtime was doing three hundred thousand. They were doing, I think, either sub one hundred or at, at you know higher than one fifty at, at most two two and some change on Showtime. It wasn't a significant difference. And on twenty twenty one, you had boxing on Showtime doing six hundred thousand viewers. I get that he's right when he says, you know, hey, bouncing from Paramount to CBS to Showtime definitely was not good for the brand. But my point is, they were already, their brand was dying when it was on Paramount. And then the shuffling to the other ones didn't help. That's the reality of Bellator. Like, they don't have a fan base. The brand as such is dead. And has been dead for quite some time. Showtime couldn't put the paddles to it and revive it. And neither could, frankly, Paramount Network. For that point, which by the way, we used to be Spike TV. So, so like that's just not that's not an accurate representation of the truth. Um, again, I like Mike, but we disagree pretty strongly on this one. 
Um, you don't buy it for its fan base. It doesn't have one. It doesn't exist. What you buy it for is its roster. And the roster has some value. And, of course, the, the library and everything else. So you want to have eight shows where you siphon off all that roster or at least big parts of that roster. I guess if the parts of the Bellator roster cross over into the regular playoff world championship or pay-per-view event, you'll get access to them. But otherwise, who the fuck knows? And more to the point, just think of it this way. Dude, what was the point of bolstering, bolstering the roster just to divide it again? What is that? I don't even understand what that is. If someone asks you what the P PFL product is, you can't answer it. Well, part of it is a tournament that has a seasonal format. Part of it is a pay-per-view thing. Part of it is just regional MMA. Then there's this other brand that's just disconnected from it that it exists, and we don't know what the part of it is. Oh, word. Hey, where do I watch PFL? Well, you can watch it on Fubo. You can watch it on DAZN. You can watch it on Pay-Per-View. You can watch it on ESPN, sometimes ESPN+, and then wherever the hell Bellator ends up. You can't even say what the product is, nor where it airs. I don't understand this at all. Well, I get it. Okay, we're going to we're going to get money from Fubo. We're going to get money from wherever Bellator ends up. We're going to get money from DAZN. We're going to get money from ESPN. And we're going to add it all up and that's going to be the way to do things. Dude, I've seen this model tried before. Pro Elite tried it. It's a slightly different model. But yes, it's true that you can you can grab back money in all these different ways. That is true. But you're also just making your product decidedly more mediocre in the process. Let's not make the tournament very good because we have to keep the Bellator shows up. And because we have to keep the Bellator shows up, let's keep Cedric Dumbay over on DAZN on PFL. And again, I don't know if how they'll matchmake him. I'm, I'm using him as an example, but maybe they'll do something different. But they were, there will be people siphoned off in that way. I don't understand what the point is of buying IP that doesn't have a fan base, but that does, does have a strong roster only to redivide the roster so that you can't flex it appropriately. What the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who's making these decisions. They're not correct. You are not going to fuck compete with UFC. You're not going to survive doing that. Your your product will not make it doing that. Mark my words. The one criticism I hear about the people who run the PFL is not that they're bad people, no. It's not that they're stupid, far from it. Not that they're not uh, experienced executives in the sports world. It's not, these are not things you can say. But I, I sincerely doubt their understanding of the long-term trends in, fight, in the fight game. I, I, they, it, there's no way you can watch what happened with Pro Elite and think, yeah, we should redivide everything. Oh, we'll make more money in this way and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're going to make... You're going to continue to make a meaningless product that you're able to monetize in five different directions. Congrats. Like, that's not... What, what is that? You'll, you will never compete with UFC, and you won't even financially survive. You actually won't... You won't even make it. Hey, well, we're going to, we're going to have this... We're going to have all these brands we're trying to nurture. If you've got, if you've got two quarterbacks, you've got none. That's what the that's what that that's just the reality. So I don't mind them having like a challenger series and then like a pro show, but that should be it. Rather than changing their core product to something that is much smarter and stronger, they decided to keep it, weaken it, and then just have all these other franchises that are also all also weak. Like, dude, what what kind of ratings do you think wherever Bellator ends up, what kind of ratings do you think it's gonna do where it ends up? It's gonna do bad ratings. 
right? Like we know that. Why would it? Why would it do good ratings? It's the same people. It's the same brand. You might have like a new look or maybe different commentators or something. I don't know if they'll keep Big John or Morrow. I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. But it's the same thing. It did poorly everywhere it went. It did poorly on Paramount at the end. It didn't always do poorly. But at the end, it did poorly. It didn't do well on CBS and it didn't do well on Showtime. Why is it going to do well at the next place? It is not. It is not. What are we doing? I don't have all the right answers, but I am certain that what they're building is not a sustainable path. Not a question in my mind. All right. Let's get to some of your questions. Um, First, I have to shout out someone. They tell me I have to shout out Super Dave Fairtex. So apparently Super Dave Fairtex is such a fan and such a cool dude that he has bought memberships for other people. Super Dave Fairtex... You're a winner in my fucking book, dude. Thank you so much for your support and your advocacy and just being just being a generous person. Thank you, bro. Really appreciate that from you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, first things first. <laughs> my daughter's like, I want waffles for dinner. Uh, all right, Jeff says, Luke, do you think there's any world in which Jake Paul takes on the Dana Mantle as the premier fight promoter? No. And how would he do poorly? He seems to be building a resume for it with PFL and MVP. He doesn't do anything with that with PFL. Um, he's more like an ambassador for the brand. Now, I have worked with MVP stuff by virtue of Showtime, and I would say that you know it wasn't the smoothest production uh, operation I've ever seen, but it was pretty good, all things considered. He probably could do something, I think, at a reasonable scale in boxing if he wanted to. But, like, you're asking Premier Fight Promoter, no. No, no I don't, that's, I don't. But dude, why would you want that job where you have to lie to everybody? Like, you can't, you can't be a promoter and not be a liar. Like, you just that's 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 the game, you know. Um, Viagra Mancer. <laughs> Hold on. With the growth, I don't think there's much of a growth. I mean, it's pretty small. Of sovereign citizen culture. These are these fucking guys like, hey, the cops can't arrest me. I'm a sovereign citizen. And then they get tased on the side of the road. Are you seeing it seeping into MMA culture yet? I've seen a little bit of it, but it's not a big deal. Tom, thank you, bro. Better take them gloves off at the gym. Uh, Let's see. Matt, the only correct take on Ian is don't hate the player, hate the game. There's a sucker born every day. The fuck does that mean? First of all, as P.T. Barnum said, there's a sucker born every minute, not every day. Also, I don't even, you know what? I'm just going to leave it alone. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it alone, bro. I don't even know. I don't even know. Uh, Steve writes, why are the UFC still doing Apex shows in 2024? Uh, because fans haven't revolted enough to give them any kind of market pressure to force them to change. So why would they? If the fans just keep accepting it, they'll just keep doing it. Michael writes, is Jamal Hill the most, quote, paper champ in UFC? What are we doing with this? He won his title against a retiring Glover and then vacated a few months later due to injury. I mean, he had a short run at the time. There's a lot of people. Listen, I, I've noticed this, right? I mean, I'm not comparing this quite to the Ian Gary thing, but I'm just saying there's a lot of people who, like, have these, like, pent-up hostilities to certain fighters that I uh, sometimes, like, the strength of the hostility I don't quite understand. I get that Jamal Hill can be a little bit rough around the edges. You know, I don't know him, uh, but he seems that way at times. I don't know. 
yes, he had a short run to the title, and it was through Glover, and then he got injured, and that sucked. But like, there's a lot of people discrediting what he did in that Glover fight that was pretty special, or pretty bare minimum very good. So I don't know. I don't know how his Achilles rehab is going to go. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I think there's a lot of people like who you know may get turned off from his attitudes at time. And I could listen. And you're allowed to like and dislike who you want. I just just like rush to undermine his resume. Don't overstate his resume. But we don't have to. You know, you see them, oh, let's rank paper champs and see where he ranks. Yeah, dude, he had an unfortunate run. I'm not sure what to say about it, but, like, I don't think it, I don't think we get anything helpful out of, like, trying to rank him in that sense. It just seems, like, intentionally shitty without being illuminating. Thank you, John. Damn, John looks a little bit like me. Uh, that mountain. Finally moving out today after my divorce. Damn, bro. My wife has been an absolute nightmare through this process. Can you recommend a book and an album for me? Shitballs. Um... Well, first of all, I feel for you, dude, because, you know, I've seen it. It sucks. I had a couple friends go through divorce, too, man. It's boys and girls, you better make good choices who you marry. Here's a piece of advice for everyone out there, because I often hear this. Like, what's not that I've got it all figured out. I mean, who the hell knows what awaits me tomorrow, you know? But um, the best piece of advice I can give you is, I mean, there's a lot of things about, like, oh, are we compatible and blah, blah, blah. Some of those things are harder to figure out than you might imagine, uh, especially if you're very young and you don't even know yourself yet. So partly there's about making more informed choices as you get older. But I think what I would say is um, try to marry a good person. Right? Um, yes, someone who's compatible. But and I don't mean like, oh, I love her so much like I that you or him or whoever that you can look past their flaws. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like try to try to find someone who's actually like you can tell a good judge of character. Somebody who is, you can tell, like genuinely honest, like doesn't fuck with people, doesn't steal, doesn't, doesn't do, you know, doesn't engage in you know, mendacity, like someone who's actually a thoughtful, caring, kind person. Because even if it goes sideways, a person like that is going to be much more helpful in a bad process. Um, I'm not trying to like find a way to like hedge a soft divorce. I'm simply saying it'll be much harder for you to walk away from someone like that for good reasons. And also, even if you do, it's not going to be necessarily the same kind of acrimonious process. Um, I got real lucky. I found someone who is, knock on wood, you know, um, a much better person than I am. You know, like maybe maybe like one of the best people in terms of like pure character, you know, I've ever seen. Um, and has, as a consequence, I feel like, you know, I'm still a flawed, fucked up idiot, but I've gotten better in the process. Um, an album and a book. Um, is there a book I can recommend? I'm not on, on divorce. Like I don't, I don't read heavy on that. Um, I can just recommend a good book to take your mind off of it. What's a good book I read a while ago? Let me see. Uh, an album. Something from the Pogues. Anything from the Pogues. Shouts to uh, Shane McGowan. Obviously, unfortunately, passed today. We were talking about the Pogues like two weeks ago, right? He was always in poor health, though, huh? He had, he had not taken great care of himself. Um, what's a book I read a long time ago that I really, really liked? Let's see. I would give you, go to my library here. I would give you, uh, 
How about... Man, I could go a bunch of different directions. Um, man. How about... Algorithms to Live By. I did not enjoy that book. Um, how about... I give you... I'm really not sure which way to go with this one. These are so unique to my interests. I don't know how valuable they would be to you. Um, how about this? Read any book authored by Edward Said. Said is spelled S-A-I-D. Read any book authored by him and then listen to the Pogues. How about that? That should help you. Did you watch John Wick 4 yet? Yes. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. Um... It's great. Two thumbs up. I enjoyed it. There's still something about... It's so overly produced now, though, that there's something about the grittiness of the raid that I still prefer. But it's great. It's great. And they're different, obviously. Thoughts on the death of world-renowned criminal Henry Kissinger. Can we get a rip bozo? Yeah, man. Dude, when I was in college, they were they, they even um, made us read one of my political science classes, like uh, the book he authored. I forget the name of it now. Uh, I didn't keep it. Um, Justin, someone was asking, like, how did he become so unpopular on the internet? Because it's true. When I was in my 20s, he was semi-controversial, but not really. He was still sort of seen as like a bright, you know, technocratic elder statesman of, you know, uh, American elegance as well as uh, strength abroad, you know, leadership. And then he turned into this monster and it's like, well, I mean, it's not hard to go through his crimes, you know. Um, ask Cambodia about him. Ask Chileans about him. Ask, uh, I mean, <laughs> ask virtually, I mean, the, the amount of death and destruction he wrought across the earth is extraordinary. I mean, millions are dead in part because of his leadership and decisions, although he did help open up China a little bit, I suppose. But, um, yeah, a real fucking monster. A real monster. How did he get unpopular over time? Uh, I just think people have been a little bit more aware of, like, America's role in trying to maintain its overseas empires and, like, what... And then and, and various interests as, it, as part of a security state and then the role in particular he played in it. And as people have become more aware of it, they have become... Uh, less forgiving than they were when I was a teen. Or, but dude, when I was a teen, he was a hero. Um, but it has in my 30s, it was like he was kind of like like 20s. He was still taught semi-controversial, late 20s, early 30s. You know, oh, he did some bad stuff. And now that I'm in my 40s, it's like this dude was a full-on fucking monster. Like it's been there has been a real shift. He has been kind of like the avatar for like overseas imperialism and over time there's more recognition of his role for like the actual shit he did and uh, it has really changed him but I can tell you very matter of factly this was not always the case Smart Fence is hooked on crack <laughs> any suggestions on helping him getting back on track like his brother the Smart Cage oh that's fucking great from Chu Changs um, they didn't let me interview the Smart Cage they didn't they didn't think that was very funny when I asked you know on Friday, last Friday so, um, so there's that. So there's that. 
Uh, God, that thing is so fucking stupid. The smart cage. And dude, did you see this shit? I mentioned it. I did like a video about it after the fact. Did you see that when the event was over, that they fucking broadcast who had the three fastest strikes? Guys, what am I supposed to do with that information? What does it even mean? Hey, uh, Larissa Pacheco's leg kick was 24 miles an hour. I mean, that sounds bad. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. I've been watching MMA and combat sports for over 30 years. I couldn't tell you what the fuck that means. Couldn't even hazard a guess. Why are you showing that to me? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. It is absolutely irrelevant. And by the way, it's less than the speed of what it is to drive through a school zone. What the fuck are we doing? This is what I mean, man. Like, don't get me wrong. These people in the PFL, they know how to raise money. They obviously have hung around. They've now acquired Bellator. Like, they, they've clearly made some good decisions to put themselves in the position that they're in. But there's a fine-tuning that comes with getting this product right that they seem quite off on. Like, their ear for that seems very off. Super Dave. I mean, is Super Dave the man or what, dude? Just gifting membership. Super Dave, you're a mensch. T-Ball Paul says, when I hear Showtime left combat sports because they wanted to focus on scripted television, the answer isn't good enough for me. It must be a deeper reason. If you can't elaborate, I understand. I can only tell you what they tell me. Uh, I mean, I think I can say this. I think Paramount wants... Um, it's not that they're getting out of sports, obviously. CBS is still there. It seems to me like... And again, this is just a guess. I do not know. It seems to me, though, that what they want to do is get back to their core properties on that, right? So... Um, uh, college basketball is a big core property for them. Um, NFL is a big core property for them. So it's not like they don't like want to be in sports or they don't even want Showtime. They want cleaner, I think, silos. Like this silo does this, this silo does that. And it's a little bit neater that way. And, uh, and I mean, I think it's driving part of it. I mean, obviously a lot of decisions are made to benefit Paramount Plus. So... They must feel like it's better to do that. And, of course, now they've bought the, the rights to Champions League, and who knows what else they'll get. I mean, obviously, also, you have seen on the CBS side, there's been, like, this massive investment in soccer. Um, you know, they have the Champions League and CBS Sports Golasso, and they have that morning show, Morning Footy, and they've hired all these different people, and they got Kate Abdo, who sits there with Thierry Henry and Micah Richards and, uh, and, and uh, the like. Clint Dempsey was on recently as well. Um, that's where all their investment is going. So they're trying, like they had, an, they had a time where they were investing in combat sports and they've pivoted. Now they're pivoting to all these other things. So what exactly are the reasonings behind that? No, no one has told us or no one has told me anyway. So I can't really say. Um, I can only tell you what they tell me. Thoughts on Napoleon and the movie. Uh, I have not seen the movie and I'm not an expert on Napoleonic Wars. Favorite Marshall? Um, I don't know. I don't have one. Good question, I suppose. Luke, can you elaborate on Taporia's personality when he is speaking Spanish? Good question. How different does he come across? Very. My friends who are native speakers say he comes off not only confident, but venomous. Yes. In English, he almost sounds sheepish. It's... it's the, the meter and the pattern is, you know, f like almost, it's, it's very diminutive. Dude, in Spanish, that is not how he sounds. He sounds like he is fucking dealing. Just, he walks out there like this instead, the way he talks. 
Now, and I, I don't know what he sounds like in his native Georgian language either. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if he speaks Russian or whatever. I, you know, I don't know any other language he speaks. I don't know. But the I, I, here, the I hate this word because you know. By the way, have you noticed that like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, no one was ever saying "standing on business," and now everyone is saying "standing on business." It's like, guys, if you didn't use the word a month ago, you don't have or the the, the term or the phrase. You don't have to use it now. It's okay. Anyway, I hate this word, but it's the best way I can describe it. Dude, the amount of swag that he has, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He transforms. He has, he just has this machismo that doesn't exist when he speaks English. At least I've not heard much evidence of it. It's much, it's so much stronger. And there's a flu, and not just that, like he almost speaks English like um. Like he's literally building the sentence in real time, you know, like that, 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 and in Spanish, it's just fluid. It just goes, you know, uh, you should all again. And I don't know as a general rule, I realize that he's from Georgia and then moved to Spain, but his Spanish is quite fluent at this point. I always say this, man, if you really want to hear someone, you got to hear them in their native language. You don't really know someone's personality until then in general, unless they really build up their second language as good as their first, but if there's any kind of drop off, um, you got to do that. Look, is there any way you can see about MK Merch Shop selling digital gift certificates to the merch store? I'm getting prizes for MK Discord annual winners, and gift certificates would be great. Uh, how about this, Othello? Can you make a note of this, and I will talk to someone about it. It's a great, a great question. I don't know how to answer it because I have to obviously work with. I can't just make a unilateral decision about it, but I can certainly bring it to the attention of the team and see what they say. Um, great question. Uh, Full Metal Pants says, blah, blah, blah. Luke, do you find the overall negativity of the new and world at large has an effect on your mental health? Oh, yeah, dude. I, yeah, of course. I mean, it's a nasty, negative world that we live in full of sad, lonely, undersexed, in general, people who have not much things better to do than to fuck with other people. Um, and the division is gross and magnified um I, I i firmly believe social media but in particular twitter makes us meaner to each other i actually think it makes us lean into these divisions and it magnifies them and it forces this kind of interaction that is inherently aggressive and confrontational in ways that it wouldn't necessarily need to be yeah i think it's really fucking bad for us um i have i don't know what to do about it i don't know what can be done about it i don't know what should be done about it but um, yeah, I, uh, I feel, I feel quite heavily the things that you're describing. Um, and of course you're not, you're not making it strictly about social media, but I think that these things have exacerbated tensions and cultural divisions in a way. I mean, America is, and then every, all these culture wars that we're fighting and, and many of them so fucking stupid, you know? absolutely meaningless and and just these signifiers of who we are that are really deeply unimportant you know um i i don't know exactly what all the causes are uh or or what the solutions might be but i certainly feel like some days i wish i wish to just completely withdraw from the world there are times man where i wish i had enough money to just sell all my shit and move to the beach and then never be heard from again I don't think I can do that. I don't think I have quite enough money for that. But boy, I wish I could. I really wish I could. 
your overall thoughts on the Pat Tillman story? Uh, an absolute tragedy, unfortunately. Killed by his own men for on accident, obviously, but um, on a mission that he later realized was snake bit. This is what I mean. You know, people often ask me, like, how could you be in the military from 98 to basically 05, but 04, uh, and not go? Well, part of it was just pure luck because the Marine Corps at the time was not using artillery either in Afghanistan or in Iraq in high amounts. Um, so what they ended up doing was going through and then converting those artillery batteries into rifle companies or whatever. And by the time I got out, they got converted just after that point. <coughs> I got very lucky in that way. The other thing was they did not make me transfer to a unit in New York. They let me stay, even though I had moved to New York. They shouldn't have done this, but they did. They let me stay in my unit in Richmond, Hotel Battery 314, 4th Mardiv. And that's where I was. So I got to stay in my unit because my thought was, if we do have to go to war, I'd rather stay with the people I've been training with this whole time than just go to a brand new unit and see how the fuck that's going to go. And the unit I was going to go to in New York ended up getting like a two-year deployment. So I just got extremely lucky. But this is the point I wanted to make. I did not have any interest in dying for George Bush. Zero. None. I did not think there was some righteous cause about it. I did not. You got to remember, my dad worked in the Middle East in the State Department all his life. And he even, uh, dude, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. My dad was very explicitly saying Saddam is bluffing. This is before any 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 of the invasion. And he was like, dude, Saddam is 100% bluffing to keep the Iranians on their heels. There's nothing more to it than that. That is it. And he knew. And he was, of course, completely right in the end. And my mom, of course, uh, even though my mom was very right-wing, but she obviously um, had a certain view of American involvement in the Middle East that was not very charitable. And she was like, this is a disaster. She actually died before they ever did it. And I remember her thinking, oh, they'll never go through with it. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget one of my last conversations with my mom was like, oh, they'll never go through with it. They'll never go through with it. And they went fucking through with it. I had no interest in dying for George Bush. George Bush is a war criminal who should be tried in The Hague. I've, I had zero. It didn't mean anything to me, even though obviously America had been attacked. And if I had been tasked with going, I would have gone, obviously. I just got so fucking lucky. I got by on the skin of my teeth. That was how I avoided it. I managed to be in a sector of combat arms that wasn't useful for the particular kinds of combat they were doing. By the time they converted all of us, I was out and I didn't have to get transferred to a different unit. That is how I avoided having to go and fight and potentially die or get maimed for George Bush. Because not like many people out there, I have been to Walter Reed. I went to the old Walter Reed. You guys know this. And I went to the new Walter Reed. And I have seen what that shit did to people. I have seen what it did to the guys who came home. I had friends who lived with me who did multiple tours in Iraq and then got better with me. And these guys were fucked up. Big time. I've told you guys about the triple amputee that I saw who was like 19 or 20. Triple amputee. He was dead inside. I had. There's no glory to any of this shit. All for so for fucking George Bush, for him, for for Paul Wolfowitz. You know what I mean? That that's that's. I, there's glory in that. Like Pat Tillman had to figure that out, unfortunately, too late. And then it was all tragedy in the end. So I really admire his guts. I admire his heroism, and I certainly admire his love of country. I take those things very seriously. But he is. You know, we were talking about cautionary tales. You know. You have to be very careful about the line your government is feeding you about why you should go kill other people. Is there a way to fix the sexism in the MMA community? Uh, <laughs> no. Every comment section about a female fighter or someone like Ian Gary's wife is insanely toxic. Yeah, it's the worst shit ever. Um, unless there is... On some level, you're going to get a rowdier crowd. You know, Not that I'm excusing it, but I just think 
relative to like I don't know uh, fucking I'll make something up um tennis or something like that you're going to get a rowdier crowd so like there's partly going to be that but the reality is um remember why do you see a little bit less of this in American football well because you have civilizing institutions that put top down pressure right so let's let's imagine this imagine you're 18 year old kid you're one of the best kids in the state you get a you get a you get a uh, scholarship offer to play for the University of Alabama, one of the best programs in the country. Good chance if you do well there, you could end up going pro, right? We're talking about one of the best, one of the best brands in college football. Now, I'm not saying these guys don't do fucked up shit. They all do fucked up shit. What I am telling you is through that, when you go there, you get media training. If you have certain kinds of behavioral norms that are expected, you have certain kinds of academic performance. Again, some of this stuff is all skirted. I understand these guys all act like animals at times, you know, whatever. We all know the stories there. But there is some kind of civilizing top-down pressure forcing codes of conduct at times anyway, more so than what we get with just independent contractors open in space. Then you get to the NFL. If you sign any brand deals or for your team or anything, the team now has an image it wants to maintain. These brand deals have an image they want to maintain. There are forces that end up either minimizing, shielding, or outright eradicating some of these negative influences or behaviors. And again, nothing works perfectly. You can find a million examples where this is not the case. Of course, I understand. Nothing is foolproof. Every, these are permeable membranes, right? They're, they're, not, they're not ironclad. But there are forces in play that they try to get you ready for the cameras. They try to make you understand about what's going to happen if you ruin the image of this institution or this professional organization or whatever. How much financial penalty could be coming with that if you lose a brand deal? These things keep things in check. There's none of that in MMA. Zero. The promoter doesn't do shit. The brands don't do shit. The fans don't do shit. The media will sometimes try, and then they are ineffective, and the fans don't want to hear it, and the community doesn't want to hear it. There is no civilizing force rooting that out or putting top-down pressure to at least minimize it. It doesn't exist. Right, And so as a consequence, this is what you get. And some folks might think that that unrestrained thing is better. It, certainly I don't agree with that, but that's a debate you can have. But that's the difference. What institution from the top down is trying to clean it up? The gyms aren't going to do it. Uh, the gyms will do it in rare cases where if someone's like a gym cancer or if somebody is attacking someone else in the gym or beating his wife or something. I've seen guys get kicked out for stuff like that. But then they just go to another gym, you know. Um, there's, there's, there's no effort with any of the top-down stakeholders to affect behavior in that way. So is it, what can you do about it? Until they do something, nothing. Luke, could it have been beneficial to have competing fighters weigh in the same two or three weeks out from their contest? Did they do that in California already? They do that, and then WBC does something similar as well. But they do that in California as well. They make you weigh in uh, in not in every case, but in many cases, um, several times ahead of time. How far will Jude Bellingham go in Real Madrid with him being only twenty? Dude, this fucking kid was at sixteen games, fifteen goals, like four or five assists. This fucking guy can't be stopped. He is so fun to watch. See, this is what I mean about top-down pressure, dude. You think you're going to go out there and you're going to besmirch the Real Madrid brand? They'll cut your ass so fast. You know what I mean? Like, you're not bigger than the brand. They, they police the shit out of those guys. You know? This is what I mean. You don't have any of these factors in MMA. Like, none. 
Um, find the time to check out the White Ribbon, not yet. Still recommendations. Uh, P.S. If you want to stretch yourself, check out Dogville. Okay. Best Nicole Kidman flick. Best Von Trier. Dogville. Duly noted. My man here, Alexander, has good recommendations. Shouts to him. Oh, here's my guy, Ant. I'm torn between the two, so help me decide. <laughs> Uh, what's funnier, the Izzy doggy shit or the, uh, Ian Gary gate. That's funny. Between the two, I've laughed myself to a six pack stomach. He's doing this to fuck with me. I do love Ant. Me and Ant don't agree on a lot of stuff sometimes, but he's funny as shit. I like Ant. Shouts to Ant. I see you, Ant. I see you, bro. All right. Uh, oh, will ESPN renewing PFL's TV deal into 24 make you watch? Yes. 50% no. Ooh. Ooh. 50, 50. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Not to body shame Dariush, but I wouldn't stand shirtless next to Saryukin if I was him. Do you think Armin makes the leap against Dariush? I hope he does. He is built like a fucking brick shithouse, but Dariush is tough, man. He's really tough. On a scale of 1 to BC, how disgusting was your car when you got it back? Well, funny you should say that. I had to, I had to send it back because they actually fucked up something, and I actually got it back for the second time last night. It was fully detailed, so it was fine. It was fine. But, dude, when they got my car, because if you guys remember, my car was stolen, and then it was recovered, and I had to go check it out. So I had to go through and, like, look at it. Dude, there was fucking weed everywhere, like little baggies of fucking drugs and shit. I was like, wow, y'all had a little party in here, huh? <laughs> y'all took my car and just did a bunch of drugs, I guess. Uh, I was like, Jesus. Uh, but it's, it's fine now. Luke, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. You recently sung your praises for deep-fried turkey. Yes. Are there any Colombian sides or entrees that can hold their own against the dish? Um, yeah, sure, dude. Like Colombian classics, like sobre barriga, um, bandeja paisa. These are all a little bit different. Fried turkey is great in terms of like making turkey good. Fried turkey is not better than fried chicken. Fried turkey is not even better than like like a really good burger. You know what I mean? Like, so if you have to have turkey because that's part of the like, cultural practice. Fried turkey is the way to go, but I wouldn't. I'm not like, yo, eat fried turkey because the shit's awesome, because it's not. It's like not awesome at all. <laughs> so I'm trying to explain. Like, I, I mean, fried turkey is good, but it's not like I wouldn't like seek it out, but for Thanksgiving, you know. True or false? GSP comes back for one more fight in 2024. False. John Jones will retire after the Stipe fight. True. David Benavidez fights Canelo in 2024 and. Beats Canelo by a close decision. I'll say false. I think he beats him by a wide decision. Ooh. PFL will fold in 10 to 15 years. Um, they could be bought out. So I don't know if that fully qualifies. I'm going to say false. I'm going to say false. All right. Captain V says, what do you think about Ant Evans? Oh, here we go. Shitting on Ant. Shilling for Dana and crapping on Bloody Elbow for publicizing, is the court, publicizing court proceedings exposing fighter pay. Well, first of all, Dana and Ant clash on Twitter all the time. So, number one, like, you got to get that straight. Like, the idea that he is shilling for Dana could not be further from the truth. He may agree in this particular case with that practice, um, but he's not doing it on Dana's behalf. Like, that's not happening. Okay, that's number one. Number two, yeah, I don't agree with him. Like, two adults can disagree. Um, these are these are court documents that have become public information um, you might ask, why do certain unions and, and leagues require this information to be public? One is because they have cap space, and so they have to make sure that teams 
are staying within it, but the other reason is that the the uh, unions demand it, and they do that in order to um, obviously make the pay go up because that's exactly what it does. Uh, I don't like. Here's the thing: I can under I I am sympathetic to the argument that like, hey, I made a X amount of money for a year, and um, you know, I don't for whatever reason someone feels about that, they just don't want that kind of thing going public, and they feel. If not embarrassment per se, because like for example, have you seen what Bisping makes? He was not doing poorly, but whatever. He may feel a certain way about it one way or the other. And at a bare minimum, just like not want that stuff out there. And 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 certainly from not having that as a normal practice, be like feeling unusual about it. Like, am I sympathetic to that feeling? I certainly am. Like I understand that people might have differences of opinion and also complicated feelings about some of these numbers going public in ways that you either never intended, never thought possible, like whatever. I, I understand that. Um, but the problem is like, I can't, I don't hear anything um, from anyone who has these reservations about how we get to a point where there actually is better pay. Like a real thing. What, okay, so if we're gonna not do this, what's the actual mechanism by which we do this? Um, and no one ever really seems to have a great answer. So, listen, the job of a journalist, such as the, there is one in MMA, um, to me, I think, is to not only cover this court case and the, the, the information that comes out of it, um, but, you know, I don't think that my personal, this is my personal opinion, and, you know, and obviously Bobby disagrees. I, don't, I, I haven't talked to him super close about this one, but my personal opinion is that the managers who are rent seekers in this business don't want this information public. Um, because uh, they want to keep closer ties to the UFC and the UFC or, you know, whoever the various promotions. I shouldn't just single them out. It's not just them. And the UFC wants to keep this secret as a way to be able to distract from the issue and keep pay low and without having to really answer for it. Like, he did this Nelka Boys interview and they didn't ask one fucking time about, like, hey, there's this court case. Like, we now know what these dudes made. Like, it's not a mystery anymore. You know, and he could be like, well, you know, Chandler makes so much he can sit back and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, part of the reason he has to sit back is because he's old, older anyway, and you're not going to give him a tune-up fight, and, you know, these guys want to make a little bit of money and then be done. Like, it's not the idea that he's just so financially lucrative and or, or, or uh, done so well, like, that's the sole reason is simply sort of absurd. Ryan Garcia, it turns out, made $30 million to fight... Um, Tank Davis, and here he is fighting this weekend, trying to get back against Oscar Duarte. Like, you know, that's a level of comfortability, and he's not even sitting around from it. I mean, granted, he's in a different place. He's in a much younger stage of his career, but this idea that it's like they, just the accumulation is why he would want to sit around. Like, these numbers, they have been shielded by power brokers on purpose at the expense of fighters. And if I could hear an argument, not just an argument, but an actual plan of what could be done by anyone in the industry to get us to a place where we could get more money and they didn't necessarily have to reveal, I would love to hear it. I would absolutely love to hear it. Um, I've just not heard one. I've just not heard one. Maybe you have. I haven't heard it. And I don't think the unions demand it by accident. And you might be asking, what about your pay? Should it be public? Yes, it should be. Um, I don't know what the mechanism would be for getting that out. I guess you could just go and share all this shit. And I suppose on some level I might or should. In fact, I might for my next contract. Um, but what I can say is 
all of these folks who have signed, like there's a Vox Media Union, there's a there's all these different journalistic unions, they should make it public. They should make it public. They absolutely should make it public. If they feel like, like the sports entities do, that it would really meaningfully improve pay, then yeah, it should. And there are certain places that have laws about declaring it up front and whatnot, you know. Um, but I just don't, I don't, I don't, I've not personally seen a lot of evidence that a lack of disclosure is better. I've only seen evidence that more exposure is better. Favorite Indian dish. Ooh. Dude, there's a place in DC and I forgot the name of what I ate, but it's called Rasika. R-A-S-I-K-A. Look it up. There's two of them. One is downtown. One is on the West end. Dude, the food at Rasika will blow your fucking socks off. It's... I'm sure the Indian food in London is better, but it's some of the best Indian food I've ever had. And I don't know the name of it. Like, I mean, everyone knows the, you know, chicken tikka masala and shit like that, which is all great. But I don't remember. I don't remember the names of what I had. But look at that menu, dude. Rasika. R-A-S-I-K-A. <laughs> it's incredible. <coughs> there he is again, just being a mensch. There he is again. <laughs> Ant, apparently making himself known today. Uh, there you go. Do we know why Ruka closed? I don't know. I don't. RVCA, whatever. Um, okay, Luke's live chat made me feel like, because whenever they're on, I just like to... <laughs> guys, you guys are, uh, you're a little mean. You're a little mean to poor Ian. All right. Who is the successful X-Fighter now coach? Oh, you asked about the Pogues. Yeah, Shane McGowan passed. I know, fucking terrible. Who is the successful X-Fighter now coach? Mike Brown. Mike Brown. Dude, fucking Javier Mendez. He fought more kickboxing, but a lot of these guys. Uh, chances Dana's anti-woke persona threatens the UFC's future with ESPN. Unlikely. Either them not wanting to work with him or him not wanting to work with them, Disney. Guys, I think in the end, money talks. Uh, all that other shit aside, I don't really... I don't think matters much. I mean, you can like certain things about what he does. You can dislike it. Everyone's got their own opinion. But, like, do I think it's going to cost him? Or that, you know, they'll make decisions around it because of... If, the, if, if ESPN still believes that it's a great deal to be in business with UFC, then they will. And vice versa. Like, I don't think there's really anything to it more than that. Uh, did you see the Rod Tank to Karo announcement? I saw... I, I have not checked it out hardcore. Can Japanese kickboxing ever be like it was? I don't know. K1 said they're coming back, or will one go belly up? One's probably going to go belly up unless they get some money from the Middle East or something. Um, that I thought Mike Hogan was very right about that. Like, they've, I don't know who, I don't know what they're going to do about that. They have they have not much um, runway left, and um, they're supposed to go belly up in 2024. We shall see. PT Games, thank you, sir. Thoughts on the death of the patron St. Henry Kissinger. Yeah, rest in piss. Uh, Major League COD, thanks, dude. I agree separating Bellator like this is a bad idea, but if they sign a broadcast deal with, say, Fox with eight Bellator events, isn't that a success? Uh, again, I'm going to ask one more time. If it didn't do well on Paramount, and it didn't do well on CBS Sports Network, and it didn't do well on Showtime, why is it going to do well on Fox? going to fucking tank on Fox, isn't it? Now, maybe they could breathe some life into it. I tend to think not. It's only eight events. It's going to do poorly there as well. The brand does not mean much to anyone. So... I mean, it'd have to be a shit ton of money, you know? Uh, we'll see. 
Surprised no one mentioned that it took 45 minutes to get to the first fight on the PFL prelims. Never going to keep viewers that way. Yeah, dude. Holy shit, man. By the way, a member for two months. Thank you, bro. The pacing. The pacing of that show was not great. You see the night comes for us. Yes, dude. There's a review on this channel. Um, I don't know if it's still up. If it's not, I can make it back available. I did I did a review on the night comes for us. It's uh it's all those dudes who are from like the raid and there's like a bunch of other movies, like I think one's like Headshot or something, Kill Shot or something. And um oh my god, dude, if you've not seen the the night comes for us, it's brutal. It's brutal. Don't watch it with the kids, don't watch it with people who are squeamish. I'll put it this way, there's a lot of knife and machete fighting in that one. But it is unbelievable. Unbelievable how gritty that is. All right, here we go. Back to Turner's comments. Is it possible that UFC pressured him somehow? It's possible. Sounds like him taking the first fight was either one, needs money, and two, UFC pressure. Again, it could be interpreted a couple of ways, but that's, that is one way to interpret it. And certainly, yes, like the promoter, it's not like, would not be the first time that... Um, UFC's ever put pressure on someone to take a fight like they're that's this is sort of like a well-documented practice in different ways anyway but it's not exactly clear that's what he means here so we should be careful uh I told you months ago small promotions aren't accessible because it needlessly hard to know where to watch not because of the price I want to buy PFL's pay-per-view from Belgium they wouldn't let me yeah I can understand that as well this is the other part too all these different deals what's available in your region what's not I would imagine most things are going to be available in the United States but hello we couldn't even get Cedric Doombay's fight. Um, it creates a lot of, of difficulty. And then last but not least, do you think Izzy will regain a, a title? UFC title? I, I doubt it. I think it's probably unlikely. But um, the night is young. All right, boys and girls. It's been officially two hours. These chats are getting longer and longer, goddammit. But I love you guys. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Podcast goes up tonight. Oh, there's one more. Hang on. One more, one more. At the end of the day, Turkey is just not very good. Also, Shavkat submitted the Iron Turtle, Junyong Park, at the age of 21. I'm supposed to talk to Shavkat tomorrow, so we'll see how that goes. But, um, oh, fucking A, one more. Are you excited for the ex-wrestler, ex-MMA fighter, now wrestler, CM Punk, to get an MMA-themed wrestling match versus Brock Larsner? <laughs> Can't say I'm going to be watching, Jeff. Can't say I'm going to be watching. Thank you for the question, and thank you for the donation. All right, boys and girls, we're out of here. I appreciate you. Um, podcast up tonight, changing up the thumbnail. Thank you so much. MK tomorrow. We out. I love you. Until next time, stay frosty. Bum, bada, bum, bum.